Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. If you uh, don't know my name, uh, my name is Joel Ken. I uh, worship down at Anchor Church, Port Adelaide. And uh, I'm here tonight to uh, just bring you a message in the series that you're doing. Uh, But before we jump into it, I would really, really love uh, to pray uh, for myself and for our hearts tonight. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I really just pray that uh, well, we, we know and we trust that your spirit is here and that you are with us always. And uh, Father, I just ask uh, that the spirit would be uh, working on each of our hearts tonight both on myself as I preach, help me to, to stay to the truth and, and to be helpful and edifying to the church. But also, Lord, help um, all of us here um, to listen to the things that we need to be listening to, um, to apply the things that we need to apply, that you would um, highlight by your spirit, that you would highlight different things for different people that they can go home and think about, discuss with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Above all, Father, um, I just ask for your wisdom because this is a topic that that really needs wisdom. It is so complex um, and sometimes the lines are so blurry. It's hard to know where you stand, but with... But with you by our side, we can know um, the way to go. And so I just ask, ask for this. In the name of Christ, amen. So I could never believe in a God who always seems to side with the powerful. That's the topic for tonight. I could never believe in a God who always seems to side with the powerful. Now, the question behind this sermon really comes down to this. Uh, Does God side with the powerful? Does God side with those who oppress the powerless? My aim tonight is to sort of quickly deal with those questions and then move into the real issue that I think is behind them. Uh, Systemic oppression, social justice, the church... God, uh, how do all these things work? Uh, There are countless Christians throughout history and today who have been systemically oppressed by the powerful. There are numbers of people who have been both Christian and at the same time systemically oppressed by the powerful. So you can think about some of the uh, African-American slaves. These were people who were caught up in an oppressive system. And yet somehow, uh, by some complete miracle, they became worshippers of Jesus Christ. So their very lives really tell you something about the premise of this sermon, which is that it's a myth, uh, it's, it's not accurate. God does not side with the powerful. If an, if an oppressed, 
powerless slave can believe in God, well, you can too. It's really as simple as that. Now, in addition to this historical reality that we can look at in our history, our scripture is filled with um, words that speak to God's concern for the oppressed. Exodus chapter 3, the cry of the Israelites has come to me, and I have seen how severely the Egyptians oppressed them. Deuteronomy 26, so we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and he heard us and saw our humiliation, toil, and oppression. 2 Samuel 22, you deliver oppressed people, but you watch the proud and bring them down. Psalm 94, cruel rulers are not your allies, those who make oppressive laws. Proverbs 14, the one who oppresses the poor insults his creator. But whoever shows favor to the needy honors him. Isaiah 41, the oppressed and the poor look for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched from thirst. I, the Lord, will respond to their prayers. I, the God of Israel, will not abandon them. Jeremiah 7, stop oppressing foreigners who live in your land, children who have lost their fathers and women who have lost their husbands. Stop killing innocent people in this land. Ezekiel 22, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have wronged the poor and the needy. They have oppressed the foreigner who lives among them and denied them justice. Zechariah 7, you must not oppress the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, or the poor, nor should one anyone secretly plot evil against his fellow human being. A stack of verses. Those are just one from uh, a bunch of different books every one of those verses comes from. There are more in Scripture. Now, some people may hear those words and they might think, well, okay, Um, all right, so God doesn't side with the powerful then. All right, well, what does he do? Because when I look around the world, when I look around my community, I see plenty of oppression today. There's still powerless people. There's still slavery and racism and sexism and trafficking and poverty and homelessness and refugees and abortion. And you're saying God stands with them. Well, uh, this isn't a very impressive God who stands with the oppressed and powerless and seemingly does nothing to change their circumstances. Well, that is the the deeper issue that I want to talk about tonight. God doesn't side with the powerful. History and scripture both testify that he stands with the powerless. But if you're going to be a skeptic about this, It does sound like lip service, in a way. So I'm not sure where you go when you want to think about the deeper issues of life. Uh, I often uh, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, traditionally thought of as written by King Solomon. And as a form of poetry, 
as a form of wisdom, literature, Ecclesiastes always speaks to the heart. And it always tells the truth about life, no matter how harsh or bleak the truth may be. Now, there are plenty of minorities or subgroups in this country um, who are oppressed peoples. I can't speak to all of them. Uh, I don't have the connection or the understanding to do that. Uh, so I'll be using um, a couple of examples uh, from, that I connect with as an Indigenous Australian. If you have a passion for some form of justice in this world, and as a Christian, you should have this passion for justice. My hope is that you can sort of relate to the words and perhaps apply them to your context, apply the principles to your own context. So we'll be looking at four or five passages from Ecclesiastes. The first one is in chapter 5, uh, verses 8 to 9. Solomon says this, if you see the oppression of the poor or the perversion of justice and fairness in the government, do not be astonished by the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher official, and there are even higher ones above them. The produce of the land is seized by all of them. Even the king is served by the fields. Oppression is a systematic issue. It's systemic. This is the way Solomon describes it. It's not as simple as one person oppressing another person. It's a system. Solomon saw this chain of oppression in his day. The one who was oppressing down here is being oppressed by his higher up. And then the same goes for that guy. Until we reach the king who sits at the top and benefits the most. Solomon is teaching that oppression is systemic by nature. Lots of people need to be involved at different levels for oppression to be possible. So for example, uh, in this country, you need the media to not focus on the two indigenous boys who were recently chased by police into Swan River and drowned to death. And as I was looking into these uh, issues, some of the comments on Facebook said things like, well, sorry, but that'll learn you. Or another one that said, if the boy had stopped running, he would still be alive. Now, whatever you make of those comments, to me, this brings up another category of people you need for oppression. You need people who lack understanding and compassion for those who are simply different to them. Now, these two people on Facebook, they're not out there you know, physically oppressing indigenous peoples, but their lack of cultural and historical understanding and compassion supports systemic oppression. Because the fact is, indigenous people, we read those stories very differently to non-indigenous people. Uh, when I read the story, my mind did not start with don't run from the police and you will not die. That's not where my mind went. My mind went to other cases of indigenous people being chased into rivers and seas 
by police and drowning. My mind went to the uh, infamous cliff in Tasmania when groups of indigenous people during the early days of colonialism were slowly walked over the edge by settlers and authorities with guns like sheep to their slaughter. They fell down and were swept away by the seas to their death. Aboriginal people guided into the oceans to their death. That's the way we read that story. My mind went to when I was a teenager and in Alice Springs, and I was questioned by authorities about who I was and uh, what I was doing at that present moment. Fortunately, I was rescued by the fact that I had a white person next to me who could vouch that I was one of the good ones. Maybe those two dead boys needed someone to just vouch for them. Maybe. So these are the stories that uh, non-Indigenous people perhaps may not understand. Historical stories, uh, cultural stories, and personal stories. And so they might struggle to show compassion in the moments when they need them. Uh, all of us, all of us must hold our tongues from speaking, draw back our fingers from typing, and first consider whether we have understanding and compassion. On Facebook recently, there was uh, an article about an agenda to have more women in politics. And I saw one comment from a Christian who said, nope, sorry, uh, the most qualified person should always get the job. And I had the sermon in mind and I was, I was in shock at what he wrote because he's missing the point. What if, just think about it, what if there are more women who are qualified for the job but the system isn't letting them actually get to the job? That's, that's actually the issue. That's called systemic oppression. And so one Christian's public lack of understanding and compassion in that moment supported oppression to the world. Going back to indigenous issues, um, systemic oppression also needs a Serena Williams cartoon to debate whether Australia is racist or not. And it needs people on social media to prefer having that debate over the debate of what does it mean to have two Aboriginal children to die from a police chase. Now again, people on social media, we're all, most of us are on social media, we're not out there physically oppressing people. But with our clicks and our likes and our shares, we're supporting the news that we want to hear. And websites are in it for the ratings and advertising, and so they always respond to how we click. So this is very complex. Uh, Solomon kind of put it very simple, but in, in reality, uh, the systemic oppression, the systems are much more complex than the way he put it. But he was right on the money. He was right on the money. 
So how can we respond to oppression? Well, an obvious response, and a response that lots of people take, is anger. But Ecclesiastes teaches that anger must always be used wisely and strategically if it's going to do any good. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 7. Surely oppression can turn a wise person into a fool. Likewise, a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Likewise, patience is better than pride. Do not let yourself be quickly provoked, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these days? For it is not wise to ask that. So oppression might be cause for a lot of angry rioting, but angry riots in and of themselves will not end oppression. In fact, my hunch is that it probably makes oppressors sort of stand their ground even more. But anger fueled protests as a small part of a larger strategy may help to slow down oppression. The oppressed and those who are allies of the oppressed need to be angry, but it needs to be controlled as well. It needs to be strategic. Uh, So when I looked at this, my mind went to Martin Luther. Uh, He was known to sort of uh, preach When he preached, he was known to make himself angry about the different sins and evils that he was preaching about that related to the topics of his sermons. This was so that when he preached, he would always preach with passion. That to me is what I would call a strategic use of anger. If you have a passion for those who are oppressed and you are allied with them or even count yourself amongst them, whether they are the immigrant, the poor, the orphaned, the widow, the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, the child and sex trafficked, whatever it is, by all means, get angry. But, but remember that God is calling you to be wise with your anger. Be controlled with your anger. Be ultimately be useful with your anger. Solomon says that this quest is going to take a lot of patience because oppression is a very long game. Verse 10 adds more of chapter 7. Do not say, why were the old days better than these days? For it is not wise to ask that. Solomon is saying that you cannot face the difficulties of the present when you pine for the past. A false sense of reality will not help actual reality. If you are oppressed, it is very easy to clock out mentally, to lose hope in the present. And again, just like anger, this is an understandable response. But Solomon says it is not wise In the end, it doesn't fight oppression, it accepts it. 
So if a slave was out in the field daydreaming about the time when he or she wasn't a slave, then they will remain a slave. And Solomon says to stay in the present, stay in reality, no matter how depressing or tragic it might be. These are, are very tough words for the oppressed and the downtrodden because sometimes, isn't there a, li- a little relief in daydreaming to sort of get through the day? Isn't it a simply just a coping mechanism? Uh, I understand why oppressed peoples would go this way. If it hurts to live in the real world, then it seems better to escape to a false world. And they may escape it either through nostalgia or even through mind-altering substances. And while that might be true, Solomon says it will not change the circumstances of oppression. Ultimately, it's accepting it. And so he teaches that oppressed peoples need to face reality, get angry about it, and be strategic and controlled with their actions. And of course, this means that the oppressed cannot do this on their own. The oppressed need allies. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. So I again considered all the oppression that continually occurs on earth. This is what I saw. The oppressed were in tears, but no one was comforting them. No one delivers them from the power of their oppressors. So I considered those who are dead and gone more fortunate than those who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has not been born and has not seen the evil things that are done on earth. Uh, When I read that, if you want to understand the raw emotion, the harsh and brutal life of what it means to be oppressed, look no further than those last two verses. It's better to die than to live a life of oppression. In fact, it's better to have not been born at all than to live this life. That's the reality for those who are oppressed. This is why refugees will risk their lives to escape their country. It's better to risk death than stay where they are. Verse 1 says that oppression continually occurs on the earth. There are no ultimate solutions uh, from our our standpoint until Jesus returns. Now that is a depressing and brutally truthful view of reality. It's similar to when Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. If you're at this stage in life, if you're at the bottom rung of society, if you have no hope, if you actually prefer to be dead rather than alive, then you are in most need of an ally to come to your side and comfort you. Solomon says, this is what I saw. The oppressed were in tears, but no one was comforting them. 
No one delivers them from the power of their oppressors. Now, five verses after this text, we have the famous passage about how two are better than one. Now, think about these words in the context of oppression, who desperately need, people who desperately need companions. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. If the oppressed are ever going to escape their oppression, they need someone by their side. To fight the cause on their behalf. But really, from my perspective, they also need someone by their side to simply give them comfort and companionship in the midst of their oppression. This is a harsh reality and it's a long reality. And you very rarely get the results you want. The oppressed don't need you to be successful at setting them free from oppression. While that would be nice, we can always hope for that. But they really need your comfort for that long haul. So who is going to comfort the oppressed? Well, the book of James says that the church will. Now, at this stage, if if you don't count yourself as one of the oppressed, uh, God is making it very plain to you. You must be an ally to them. A person who can support the cause of justice on their behalf. When God says that he stands with the powerless, he is calling his people to stand with them. Ultimately, to stand with him as he stands with them. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, orphans and widows are common symbols of the powerless, those who are vulnerable to oppression, Uh, If you search for those two words, you'll find them everywhere. You'll you'll usually find them alongside the blind, the deaf, the poor, the sick, the immigrant, and anyone else who is on the fringes of society. And also, you will find that God's people have always been called to see them and care for them in their distress. So in referencing these orphans and widows, James is reminding the church about those who are on the fringes of society, those who are powerless and who are reliant on the powerful. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is pure and undefiled religion. The second step is related to it. Keep oneself unstained from the world. This verse is talking about 
worldly systems that are hostile to God and his plan for the world. This world has a variety of systems that are hostile to God. And that includes systems of power that are incongruent with God's love for humanity. Systems of power that are at odds with God's love for all people. Systems of power that oppress certain people in society. Systems of power that, at their worst, can extort the widow and the orphan and the powerless. And at their best, sometimes they just simply ignore them. And so James is calling the church to meet the powerless in their distress. Christians are not called to meet the powerless outside of their distress. We are called to walk into their distress. We are not called to meet people in a neutral place. Uh, wait till your life gets better and then we'll meet. But to move into their neighborhoods and be invited to their homes. We are to find the oppressed where they are and comfort them. Like Ecclesiastes says, like James says, like God is saying through them, like God does, to meet them where they are in the same way that God met us where we are. And so is this happening in the life of the church? Is justice happening in the life of the church? Because if it is not, your theology may be incredible, impeccable, but you still have what James calls defiled religion, a religion that cooperates with the hostile power systems of the world. Um, I was thinking about this recently. Uh, um, a, a preacher that I like from America is involved with this uh, theological statement about social justice, and uh, it's quite good. Um, and uh, I was listening to a sermon. That's John MacArthur, by the way. I was listening to a sermon, and uh, he talks about how social just justice is not a part of the gospel. Uh, it's not an essential. Um, and I would agree with him. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not an essential part of religion. Because that's what James says here. Social justice might not be tied up with the gospel, but it's certainly tied up with the Christian religion and how we're supposed to be living today. Lastly, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we discover that governments are able to decrease and increase oppression in the country. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 5. Whoever obeys the king's command will not experience harm. And a wise person knows the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. For the oppression of the king is severe upon his victim. Surely no one knows the future, and no one can tell another person what will happen, just as no one has power over the wind to restrain it. So no one has power over the day of his death, just as no one can be discharged during the battle. 
So wickedness cannot rescue the wicked. While applying my mind to everything that happens in the world, I've seen all this. Sometimes one person dominates other people to their harm. Solomon is teaching about the limitations of government. Uh, if you can get on a politician's good side, then life, life could be quite good for you. But one of the drawbacks of democracy is that a politician is also interested in keeping their job. Uh, now that makes sense. Um, I'm not going to knock a person for trying to stay in their job. But it does reveal the limitations of government, even a democracy. Because this system makes it hard for the minority to get ahead in life. Because it is to the benefit of the politician that they care for the social majority. Many times the politician will help the minority only if the majority are allied to them. This passage teaches us that the government is able to decrease and increase oppression. But in a fallen world, it is not always in the best interest for a government to decrease oppression. It may cost a politician their job. And sadly, some governments increase oppression for their own benefit. For example, slavery, hard labor for cheap pay. That was economically beneficial for the American government and extremely, extremely oppressive for African Americans. Ecclesiastes says it plainly in verse 8, wickedness cannot rescue the wicked. Even a healthy government can do their best, but wickedness cannot rescue the wicked. Governments corrupted with sinful people cannot rescue people corrupted with sin. And if that wasn't depressing enough, verse 9 finishes the passage like this. While applying my mind to everything that happens in the world, I have seen all this. Sometimes one person dominates other people to their harm. That is not a very encouraging way to finish one's message. Sometimes people just depress each other. That's it. I've looked around the world and that's what I've concluded. And the government, they can't really do anything about it. The government sometimes are doing it. Uh, this is very unsatisfying. Uh, I hope you feel unsatisfied with that. I have a suspicion that Solomon wants us to feel unsatisfied about this. Well, I thought God was supposed to solve all our problems in the world. So, well, sometimes belief in God actually creates new problems and new questions for life. So we have, in a sense, we've come to understand our role as the church in this. To be those who are the comforters of the oppressed and who 
meet the powerless in their distress. But the remaining question is this, well, what exactly is God doing? Okay, of course, when Christ returns, oppression will cease forever. But in the meantime, if God is standing with the oppressed, what exactly is he doing? Because if if I'm going to be a skeptic right now, I'm reading through Ecclesiastes, and it sounds like God isn't exactly doing anything about it. Because sometimes one person dominates other people to their harm. That's Ecclesiastes. Oppression is a long game, so be patient. Well, don't get too angry about it. That's not going to be helpful. Don't daydream about better days. That's not going to do anything either. Well, you know what? When it's all said and done, sometimes one person dominates other people to their harm. I'll send you some allies to comfort you while you're being oppressed. This is very unsatisfying if you don't know the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God the Son who took on the form of human flesh. Before doing this, he relinquished his divine power and he lived as a human in complete dependence upon God. Now, not only did God the Son take on flesh, but he took on the flesh of an indigenous person who, whose land was taken over by a stronger nation. He took on the flesh of the oppressed. And throughout Jesus' life, God did not take away his oppression. Jesus' life ended with oppression. He died on a Roman cross. He died on the people who stole the land of Israel. He died on their cross. The true and rightful king of Israel died in the capital of Israel at the hands of foreign oppressors. But Jesus did not stay in the grave. He was raised by his father, and God is calling the oppressed of this world to take on that story of Christ, to unite themselves to Jesus Christ through faith, to be oppressed as he was oppressed, to die under oppression as he died, and to be raised as one who overcame oppression, just like he was. Ultimately, it comes down to this. If there is no God, oppression is a brutal fact of life that we can do nothing about. There is no purpose to it. But if there is a God, then oppression still is a brutal fact of life, but it has a deeper meaning. There is a purpose for it. It is so that people can see the beauty of Christ in his oppression, in his willingness to take on oppression. It is so that people can follow him in their oppression.
to become more like him in their oppression. Romans 8.17 says that, Indeed, we suffer with him, so we also may be glorified with him. Oppressed people have a unique opportunity to follow Christ in a deeper, maybe even more significant way than those who are counted among the powerful of this world. Now, people wonder why God has not ended oppression once and for all. What kind of God, what kind of powerful God lets oppression continue? Well, let me suggest that uh, complete control and power does not always mean you get rid of something. It might mean that you have the strength to use that thing uh, as something that bends to your will. For example, if someone has a gun, he can decide to kill you or make you dance by shooting at your feet. And so I propose that God has not gotten rid of oppression because he has redeemed it through the story of his son who entered into a life of oppression. Now, this is a hard truth, and I'm not going to pretend that it's not. Some people are oppressed so that they have the opportunity to become more like Christ. Who was oppressed? God was in Jesus Christ, the oppressed indigenous person on stolen land. If you are a member of the oppressed in society, you have the unique opportunity to follow Jesus in his oppression. God is not on the side of the powerful, God is on the side of Christ. who identified himself definitely not with the powerful, but with the powerless. And if you are not a member of the oppressed, God is calling you to stand with him as he stands with them through the story of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, this is a, uh, a tough word in many ways. It is complex. It is not black and white. Uh, but Father, just ask for your wisdom again that um, you would be working on, on people's hearts and drawing them closer to you and where you stand. And ultimately, Father, we just ask that you uh, would give us the strength to stand with people in their distress, as James is calling us to do, as Christians. Lord, I pray that we take that seriously and that we look for, look for ways to bring justice on earth and that we look for ways to develop justice in this church. Help us, Father, to be more understanding and to be more compassionate for those who are different to us. And uh, Lord, we just thank you that you are with us 
and that we don't have to rely uh, completely on ourselves, but you have given us your spirit, and you have given us this church community to work these things through. And we thank you for that. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.